1: And I've always been interested in evil, <laughs> I mean, and, and where it lives and how it conducts itself. I think that's absolutely fascinating because I've, I've got this horrible nagging feeling that it's our natural state and civilization and decency are just this thin veneer laid over the top.
2: Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Push the Envelope. I'm the AV Club's editor in chief, Patrick Gomez, and today we'll be hearing from the Undoing star, Hugh Grant, who joins us to discuss all about the recent finale of his HBO drama. But first, we've got some more award news. The Grammy nominations were announced just before Thanksgiving, and to break down the big takeaways, we welcome two of the AV Club's editors, Alex McLeavy and Shannon Miller. Thanks for joining, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Yeah. So the Grammys are coming up at the end of January, and we're going to have some interesting races for some of the big awards, Uh, and we're going to be breaking down the top categories in a moment. But first, I wanted to discuss a few big takeaways that if you haven't read our fantastic piece breaking down all of the nominations uh, on avclub.com, definitely check that out. But we're going to touch on a little bit of that here. First of all, just to kick things off, you know, we have at the top of the leader pack Beyonce, who, you know, understandably is uh, is the leader in the number of nominations with with nine for her song Black Parade. You both are, are big music lovers and experts. Uh, was this a surprise to anyone? Uh,
0: you know, honestly, it was a little bit of surprise. I mean, obviously, it's nobody's surprise when Beyonce tops any list, <laughs> whether it's nominations or awards or best of in the history of the world. Um, but. Nonetheless, like Shen and I were actually talking a little bit about this last week, how we had both (laughs) honestly forgotten that Mm -hmm. Black Friday had come out this year. uh, That's shock it up to 2020. But um, yeah, I mean, Shen, you can speak to this too, but, you know, let alone the fact that it's just a a single leading, which is pretty rare. Usually it's somebody with a full album who clenches the most nominations for obvious reasons. But yeah, I think just, you know, yeah, shock it up to 2020 craziness, but I I still remember Black is King far more profoundly than I do Black Parade. Shannon?
3: Definitely agree. And I think because it sort of slid under the radar, um, I mean, not under the radar, but sort of under the cover of Black is King, it was kind of easier to forget. So, yeah, when the list of nominations came out, I was like, uh, oh, okay, yeah, that was that this year. Okay, well, you know, great for her. Um, So in in that respect, yeah, absolutely shocking. Um, When you look at just how busy she was this year, In terms of the amount of projects she's put out between her collaboration with Megan Thee Stallion, The Savage Remix, Black Parade, and Black is King, it becomes a little less surprising just because the Recording Academy tends to reward anytime she does anything. So she has technically three projects that these nominations are split among. And looking at it that way becomes less surprising. But yeah, you kind of have to be reminded that Black Parade came out at all before you can kind of <laughs> d- dig into like, okay, well, maybe it's just sort of what happens when Beyonce, like you mentioned, does anything.
0: Yeah. There's a degree to which I think it's, it's almost a sort of Martin scorsese uh, ask nominee. It's like, oh, Beyonce did something, throw it in there. Like, exactly. wrong? I think it's, you know, it's a great song, but it's, it's far from her best work, I would say.
3: Yeah, I would agree. To me, I feel like the deserving project is always going to be Lemonade in terms of her body of work. So, while I tend to not be big into makeup wins in terms of like her being rewarded, if Black Reward is rewarded handsomely, I would consider it sort of like late justice for the stuff that Lemonade kind of missed out on. But yeah, in terms of like her body of work, Black Parade is up there, but it's not my favorite.
2: Late Justice, I feel like, is is going to be your eventual TV series that you that you have, uh, Shannon. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, behind Beyoncé is a trio of nominees in terms of the number, at least. We'll get into who's deserving in a little bit, but we have Taylor Swift, Dua Lipa, and Roddy Ricch coming in right behind Beyoncé. Uh, do we think any of them have a a good shot at at being the night's big winner because, as you mentioned, they're they're supporting bigger albums or projects, so they maybe have more of a shot of walking away in terms of the most numbers of wins at the end of the night.
0: Yeah, there's a good chance of that. I mean, I think especially when you're talking about Taylor Swift, you know, uh, beloved beloved darling of the of the Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences. I, I think she is probably the best primed to maybe come away with a big win, not just because historically that's been the case for her, but also just because I think folklore has a lot of sort of critical and industry push behind it for a win. Uh, She, to me, to me, I I would be surprised actually if she doesn't walk away perhaps the biggest winner of the night. But I don't know. I'd be curious, Shannon, your take. I know you're you're, uh, the big Dua Lipa booster on staff, so I'm curious if if you see it differently.
3: Oh, man. Um, if, if Dua Lipa came out as a big winner, that would be a surprise. Um, but this year is chock full of surprises. I kind of cling to Zendaya winning with the M's this year. It's like that was sort of that mm. unexpected win. Yeah,
0: um that's a good comparison.
3: And I, I would hope that in, in this case, I, I would love to see a split. Because the folklore, I I think, was a pretty... Tremendous album. Then um, that's coming from someone who is is not a huge Taylor Swift fan. But Dua Lipa's Future Nostalgia was just such an immaculate pop album that it would be a real shame if she came out empty-handed here. Um, Roddy Ricch Everywhere Rockstar was everywhere. But in terms of who would probably win big, I would be very surprised if it wasn't Taylor Swift. But I would love a pleasant surprise. In do Lipa coming out on top?
0: Yeah, agreed. I mean, that's yeah. As you said, that's a that's a good way of putting it. She's such a it's such a great album. It's just such a joyous album that for it to end up winning and take or taking home multiple awards would be, I think, uh, would be fine by me.
3: Yeah, and and not that I put too much stock in outliers I have little to do with eligibility, but it came at such a perfect time too that it I think that helped it in becoming. Resonant. It came at the top of the pandemic when we really needed a sunny album like this most. I'm wondering if that's going... I mean, this is a weird year, so nothing's impossible. I'm wondering how much that is going to play into the voting body. But yeah, it would be pretty great if it came away with something something big.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting point you bring up, Shannon, in terms of what speaks to the time. And I think we see that a lot in at the Oscars, you know, oh, this mm-hmm. this speaks to this current feeling or sentiment that's going on in the country or uh, or that kind of stuff. And and I think we don't we don't really talk about it as much with the Grammys, but it certainly comes into play. And I think Dua Lipa's kind of hit stuff on one side, and then I think Taylor Swift's choir folklore actually kind of hits another mood of the pandemic mm-hmm. in 2020. So it's interesting to see what'll happen. But on the other end of the spectrum, you know, in terms of names that we're not talking about as big contenders this year are Justin Bieber, The Weeknd and Cardi B. And Cardi B obviously had her song uh, of, of the year, possibly in terms of just having a moment um, with Megan Thee Stallion with WAP. But that's not here. And, and Alex, I know you mentioned two different theories. Uh, one may be a little bit more serious than the other on why we're not seeing that specific song here.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to go ahead and say that the voting body is made up of cowards uh, for not nominating WAP. Uh, it, it dominated 2020 in a way f- few things have. Unfortunately, the much more mundane theory is also the right one, which is that it wasn't submitted for consideration by Cardi B. Mm-hmm. Uh, she wanted to save it, I guess, for inclusion with her album as a whole, which is going to be eligible for Grammy consideration next year. I kind of think it was a mistake on her part to do that. I think, I think WAP would have absolutely cleaned up uh, this year had it been uh, Mm -hmm. in contention, but, you know, in terms of wanting to save all the glory for oneself, which Cardi is very good at sometimes (laughs) um, that I think there's nothing wrong with that.
2: I I think it's an interesting point, you know, how, you know, she's not striking while the iron's hot and maybe the iron will be Mm -hmm. even more red hot uh, with the album and she'll, you know, be able to clean up, as you said, but, it does seem like a missed opportunity to take the biggest song of the year in terms of just notoriety.
3: Yeah, especially considering if if you're talking about a follow-up to Invasion of Privacy, which already set the bar very high in terms of her body of work. I can only imagine, of course we we have no inkling of what this album sounds like, but if you're if you're starting with Invasion of Privacy, I can imagine that the pressure is already on to create something pretty stellar. So it's not like she would necessarily need WAP to to sort of bring it in if if you're only if you're only improving and in terms of the singles that she's released up to this point, it really has hinted towards an, an improvement in what she's already kind of mastered for herself. So yeah, holding on to your golden goose when things have cooled down considerably, I, I don't no that that's a strategy that I would have gone with I would have just gone the black parade route and been like this is my single this is what I'm riding out on and um I'm just going to collect my trophies please and thank you so it's yeah it's it's a little curious to go this route but you just kind of have to respect the artist that the artist knows what's best for them and my hope is to see it next year and for her to do something to sort of reignite this fire i can't imagine it would take much walk is just so damn fun so it'd be interesting to see how she's going to sort of reignite that love next
2: year. Yeah. Well, and you know, she obviously chose to not have that song be up for nomination. Somebody that's Mm -hmm. been very vocal about not being nominated is the weekend, which uh, I know Shannon, you and I have had discussions about, about the nuances of what, of what his, you know, his, is being said about how basically the, the rumors are that he is, uh, or at least those around him are saying that it's because he's performing as part of the, halftime show at the Super Bowl It's for some reason, that's like the Grammys were not happy about that. And he's being punished. Although as you and I mentioned, Shannon, that would, that would take a lot of organization that I'm not sure <laughs> the Grammys have the ability to, to do in terms of organizing their voting body, but it's, it's an interesting conspiracy yeah. theory <laughs> at the very least.
3: Yeah. Um, it makes little sense <laughs> in the grand scheme of like, why, that would not why that happened. um I I don't, I I don't think it has anything to do with the <laughs> with the Super Bowl. um but I choose to believe that he is operating off of pure and valid shock because I mean
4: and justified shock
3: yeah, exactly, valid, justified shock because however you feel about the weekend, I know how I feel about the weekend i I, I could take a leave, but blinding lights is a phenomenal track. I mean, it is just such a well-produced orchestrated track that that alone, I think, warrants a little bit of like, we should question some things here. So I I choose to think that he is just sort of in a little bit of shock and just sort of tweeting or Instagramming through his grief. And I totally get it. I'm way more empathetic to his sort of outlook than that of others, I'll say.
2: Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Like that song, it, it, it's, it's a little surprising that it, it didn't get, because, you know, it's one thing, sometimes we see people not get nominated and we're like, well, that's just not like the Grammys vibe. But like this song yeah. is totally in the Grammy vibe so I'm surprised. One other surprise in, in a, uh, or maybe not surprise, but things to, thing to celebrate in terms of the nominations is the fact that we know 100% for sure um, that a woman will win the Best Rock Performance Award when the Grammys are announced in January, and that's because all of the nominees this year are female. We have Joan Apple, Big Thief, Phoebe Bridgers, Haim, Brittany Howard, Grace Potter, these are these are all fantastic artists, but Alex, I know you have one that you are stumping for here in particular.
0: Yeah this <laughs> this is a this is a rare instance of actually having one of my favorites make the list, which you know it's rare enough. I think you know you'll hear our film critic uh, A. Dowd talk about you know the rarity with which his favorite films actually end up becoming nominated for Oscars, US picture nominees at the end of the year. But music is, I mean. Even so much more diverse because there's so much more of it uh, that it's incredibly rare, I think, for people's legitimate favorites to end up making the list. So for Big Thief not which we called out way back when it was released as easily, I think, one of the best songs of the year. And I've mm-hmm. sort of continued to be, beat that drum for it all year long. So to have it nominated for Best Rock Performance and for Best Rock Song, I think, is is great. It's just it's very heartening to see, uh, you know, a case of something that we've been a big booster of uh, really jump into the big leagues like that
2: well another uh a- another nominee that we certainly are big boosters of that perhaps perhaps don't need our boost but we give it to them anyway is is bts <laughs> who have been nominated in the best pop group performance category and shannon i know you're a huge k-pop fan um and that this is a, this is a not just for bts fans but for k-pop fans and, and the genre in general this is a big nomination for them
3: Absolutely. I was equal parts thrilled and entitled when <laughs> they announced this, which I feel a lot of probably a lot of um K-pop fans can can relate to. I mean it it's Dynamite was such a killer, killer song and sort of shot into the pop zeitgeist immediately after it was released. It's wonderful. I mean, in terms of songs that I would have liked to see nominated in its stead. Um, I think On was such a rich production that it would have been nice to see some recognition for that. But in terms of just becoming the first K-pop group ever to be nominated in a major category, it's huge. And because they've been traversing such incredible and valid inroads in the Western market, this is pretty long overdue for them, I think. So my hope is that This is sort of widening the scope of what the Recording Academy sees as valid hits and songs that are worth the recognition.
0: Well, Shannon, I'm sure BTS are mostly just grateful that they got the much needed boost from the AV club uh, because they were (laughs) were floundering in obscurity.
3: I know that they were very much at the edge of their seats wondering what I thought. Um, so <laughs> for the boys that are surely listening out there, you did good.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, something else that we've definitely discussed at AV Club is the use of the term urban in music, and obviously. At one point, that was a prevalent term, but we've had mul- much discussion as a society on, on whether or not that it should be continue to be used. And the Grammys decided in their wisdom this year to drop the term urban from the categories uh, like Best Urban Contemporary Album, which has been renamed Best Progressive R&B Album, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot to be made in, in the PC-ness of 2020, but this is one that it's not even a PC thing. It's just like, it's an, an inaccurate term. I, I don't even know where to start with this one. The fact that, that it even gained prevalence at any point in time.
0: Yeah. This is one of those, this is one of those category changes that's so long overdue that you just mm-hmm. kind of, you. it's kind of shocked. you know, three years from now, kids are going to be like, wait, that was still what it was called in 2019. You know, it's, it's sort of startling. I, I think it really did take, though, a recent push by a couple of big name folks. I think it might have actually been Tyler, the creator, just posting the Instagram that just says the term "urban" <laughs> is racist in the Grammys. And just adding the Grammys might have been uh, the straw that broke the back. But, you know, I, it's yeah, it's a long overdue uh, shift for for actually just getting the basic terminology right. Because
2: as you say, it's, it's, it's so past the point where it made any sense. I remember it being the subject of conversation and i think the pilot of blackish like seven years ago yeah, yeah exactly one of the things that's that's interesting to know here though is that while it was dropped from most categories it actually was added to a category for best latin pop album is now called the best latin pop or urban album so i mean like who knows one one step forward two steps back or, or maybe in this case two steps forward one step back i mean progress is progress i guess <laughs>
0: Yeah. The struggle continues. I, I don't know.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, with all of those observations out of the way, let's get to the, um, well, three of, I don't want to say the biggest awards. Uh, there's, there's lots of, of ones that were categories that we're very excited about, but, um, let's discuss best new artist, best record and best album. And we can start with best new artist, which speaking of eligibility periods and, and all of that can, can be honestly considered one of the most random categories often because you get, people that have been around for years that are somehow eligible as a best new artist. And and this year, those nominees are Ingrid Andres, Phoebe Bridgers, Chica, Noah Cyrus, D Smoke, Doja Cat, Kaitranada. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right, uh, and Megan Thee Stallion. Uh, Are there any initial thoughts from either of you on this list? Yeah, I mean, the, the
0: Best New Artist, as you, you rightly sort of point out the sort of haphazard nature of it, it really does come down to just, you know, people who sold enough records at this point or got their name in the press enough to decide that the, they're worth the Academy's attention, despite having maybe labored for years prior to this. Um, you know, there are, there are a few people this year who I think are definitely, clearly deserve to be considered under the category of Best New Artist, I think Doja Cat probably foremost among them. But, you know, people like Phoebe Bridgers and others who've been doing this for a number of years, you know, it's a little bit more just about recognition. Chica would be another good example of somebody really coming out with some strong stuff. Uh, Shannon, do you, have a, do you have a preference here?
3: In terms of like who is actually new, who <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm thrilled to see Chica on this list. I I've, This is a drum that I've been beating for a while. I, I think it's a long shot, unfortunately, but Chica, it would be great to see her walk away from it. But in terms of what the Academy is recognizing as new and how they define this category, which is, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, I believe it's along the lines of someone who has also made a a tangible impact on the industry. I mean, this is a pretty monumental year for Megan Thee Stallion for a number of reasons, um, fortunate and unfortunate. And definitionally, I I would think that Megan Thee Stallion would be the clear front-runner which I would be happy to see her Mm -hmm. win. But coming up right behind her is Doja Cat. I mean, if you think of her origins and how (laughs) she basically turned a meme into like just this ride on a shooting star and seeing her work so diligently this year. I compare her a lot to... Tank in the bangers when it comes to performing. You mm-hmm. cannot stack two performances next to each other and see the same thing. Um, she works so hard to reinvent herself with every live performance that she does. And it really speaks to her creativity. So if Megan Thee Stallion were to lose, I would love for her to lose to Doja Cat or Chica.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, you look at Megan's work on her own, but also she's got some Beyonce work and some, uh, obviously, WAP. Uh, so this could be actually the opportunity for people to honor WAP in a way. So, so I, I do think that there's there's a definite mm-hmm. chance that uh that Megan could could walk away victorious here. I think it's Megan's to lose at this point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, let's look at Record of the Year, which has Beyonce's Black Parade, Black Pumas' Colors, DaBaby featuring Roddy Ricch's Rockstar, Doja Cat's Say So. Billie Eilish's Everything I Wanted, Dua Lipa's Don't Start Now, Post Malone's Circles, and Megan Thee Stallion's Savage. Shannon, let's start with you on this one. What are your thoughts?
3: I don't know. Um, <laughs> I am kind of at a crossroads with Savage and Don't Start Now. Because this
2: is, it's Savage, it's the version with Beyonce, yeah? I believe mm-hmm. so, yes. It's not yeah. listed formally here, but I believe that's the, that's the, the version. Yeah.
3: I mean, that was just such an unstoppable track when it came out that for me, I think that that's the one that kind of feels like the clear winner. I mean, say so heavily memed, permeated just pretty much every kind of faction of pop culture between music and TikTok and, and, and everything else. But Savage, I, I think is going to be the, the clear front runner. But again, one of those things where it's like a pleasant loss. <laughs> we don't start now, I feel. Yeah, I, I'm going to go Savage, final answer.
2: <laughs> and how about you, Alex? Uh,
0: I'm actually, I think this is Beyonce's category to win. You know, we always we always do the, you know, when we write these sort of upcoming award summaries, we always do the what will win, what should win differentiation and for me this is a clear example of i think will win beyonce should win there's a couple other things that uh, you know shannon has called them out uh, i think Billie eilish could do a sort of come from a victory i think you know she's only up for really one thing this year this would be the place to honor her but you know one of the two biggest categories and beyonce is the biggest name with most nominations i i really think she's going to take this one
2: I think one of the interesting things here when you just look at this pool of nominees as a whole is it's, it's an interesting, I think showing how much the Academy has kind of grown in the, in the music that it wants to honor with these big awards. A lot of times here, I think you would get some more legends or, you know, people that have maybe had like less celebrated releases, but are just bigger names that the Academy voting body was more familiar with. And that kind of stuff. And I think that there's a there's a few here that we definitely would not have seen a few years ago just because people wouldn't have taken the time to get to know them. So I think that's that's a win for, for everyone, really, which is super exciting. And you see a little bit of that also in album of the year. So those uh, let's let's dive into that. And those nominees are Jenny Aiko's Chilombo, Black Pumas, Black Puma's Deluxe Edition, Coldplay's Everyday Life, Jacob Collier's JC Volume three. Again, hoping I'm saying that right. I know that the D is silent, <laughs> um, and it's supposed to yeah, be. Yes, Jesse. <laughs> Perfect. Himes' uh, Woman in Music, Part Three. Dua Lipa's Future Nostalgia. Post Malone's Hollywood's Bleeding. And Taylor Swift's Folklore. Let's bounce it back to you, Alex. <laughs> I
0: mean. You know- one of these things is not like the others, right? <laughs> I mean, somebody, the the grandfather clause that allowed Coldplay's everyday life to get into this category is clearly strong. And I think a definite nod to what you were talking about, Patrick, of how maybe in years past, even recent years past, this would have been a very different looking list. And Coldplay sort of represents that old guard of nominees. That being said, I actually, I think this is a pretty strong list for albums of the year this year. I think mostly they actually selected things that overall have, you know, weren't just commercially very successful but were critically also acclaimed, you know, almost every single one of these is really good. I like that Black Pumas got in here. I think, mm-hmm. you know, they sort of flew quietly under the radar and sort of amassed this big following without much in the way of, you know, a sort of giant breakout moment. Uh so that one I like, Jacob Collier, you know, Haim, I think, is I, I, I think this is a strong enough record that it deserves to be there, even though maybe Women Music Part 3 didn't uh, rock the earth as much as they but hoped it would. Uh, that all said, I am I'm, I'm still I'm still leaning towards, I think, precisely what we were just discussing. Shan and I, of course, once again going back and forth with Dua Lipa and Taylor Swift. Uh, I'm gonna give my money to folklore, but I, I wouldn't mind being wrong.
3: I have a lot of strong feelings about this. <laughs>
0: Um, <laughs> about this. I mean, it, it's
3: obviously not everything that we love can be nominated. So I still remain perplexed that "Petals for Armor is not in here or Fetch the bowl, the bowl Cutters. But based on this list, I agree. My money is definitely on Taylor Swift. What I would love to see walk away with it is Jesse Volume 3, just because the things that that Jacob Collier did with that album are astonishing and kind of speaks to his mission to kind of blow away the idea of genre. And he really did an incredible job of just bringing in so many elements that should have clashed horrendously and making them absolutely purr under his guidance. I, I just I was blown away by Jesse volume three, but I do see that as like the dark horse of this category. And I imagine it will go to either Taylor Swift for the win or Dua Lipa for the surprise.
2: I, I think that those are both good choices, and, and I think you know I, I could just repeat basically what you've all have said for the reasons why. But I, I certainly think that those are the those are the two choices. Uh, I want to urge all of the listeners to definitely continue to check out our ongoing music coverage on the site. We are very very proud. Um, while other places are unfortunately pulling back other places that cover the broad spectrum of entertainment in the way that the AV Club does is our pulling back on music coverage. We continue to make it as much of a priority as we can. And that will continue through until the awards show on the 31st of January, when all the Grammys are announced. And Alex and Shannon, you both are a big part of our, of our coverage of that kind of stuff. So we look forward to everything you have to offer. And also... You know, uh, you didn't give yourself the shout out, Shannon, but I will do it for you. Um, Shannon did a did a great interview with Jacob Collier uh, about his latest offering. And you can certainly check that out on avclub.com as well, where he talks all about uh, what she was referencing in terms of kind of trying to throw away genre. And that was fantastic. So I look forward to both of your continued commentary on all of this, as well as uh, our coverage on award show night. But for now, I really want to thank you all for stopping by and giving giving us all your thoughts on these Grammy nominations.
0: Uh, I'm sorry, Patrick, for the past minute, were you mostly just describing how awesome we are?
2: Yes, (laughs) that's actually the whole purpose. I just wanted I just wanted you all to come on. This all was a prelude to me, just like this is your life and, and telling you that how fantastic you both are. It's, it's really the whole purpose of this podcast. Perfect. Yeah. I, that's what <laughs> I'm so glad that's on wax. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that being said, this podcast is not over. Uh, now we are going to welcome our executive producer, of video and audio initiatives, Mara Egan, who recently got the chance to chat with the undoing star, Hugh Grant. Mara, thanks so much for joining us and thanks for chatting with Hugh.
4: Yeah, of course. I love to talk about Hugh Grant.
2: uh yeah so you got to chat with him uh he he revealed to us a little bit about the behind the scenes of things that may or may not have happened on the show in an alternate universe kind of stuff but also just generally about what's been going on with him and his career and his his life uh what was that discussion like
4: oh i mean it's it's I have loved Hugh Grant for like 25 plus years. So it's always one of those things where it's like hard to know where even to start when you're talking to someone that you've liked for that amount of time. But we talked about media literacy. We talked about The Undoing, of course. We talked about Paddington, too, because of course we did. We talked about he has like five kids under 10. So we talked about books that he reads with his kids and, and all sorts of other fun stuff. So I don't know. He was charming. I mean, big shock oh and we talked about um whether being charming is a uh, uh a cover for sociopathy or or psychopaths
2: ah well you know i'd, I'd like to consider us uh both charming so let's hope not <laughs> uh, dun, dun, dun. but let's yeah. <laughs> uh but no let's uh let's take a listen to that conversation
4: So I loved The Undoing. I thought it was interesting that for so much of your career, you've been described as playing these, like, quote-unquote, charming characters. But with The Undoing, you played a character whose charm is kind of a mask for his, um, what may be, I guess, psychopathy. Does that feel cathartic or interesting in any way to you? Like, was that appealing?
1: I don't think I ever thought this is a way to reverse the way I was viewed in a lot of films in the sort of 1990s, early 2000s. I just thought this is a fascinating psychological specimen, fascinating character. And I've always been interested in evil. <laughs> I mean, and, and where it lives and how it conducts itself. I think that's absolutely fascinating. because I've got this horrible nagging feeling that it's our natural state and civilization and decency are just this thin veneer laid over the top
4: it feels that way right now i mean it's it's certainly interesting to see sort of with like world leaders how far charm can get
1: you in terms of people who are actually out there at the moment sort of big examples of the jonathan type i mean i do think jonathan's extraordinary level of narcissism has some parallels in uh, narcissistic delusion has some parallels in for instance uh, trump's Attitude to the election you've just had, where I think he knows intellectually he lost that election in the same way that Jonathan knows intellectually that he killed Eleanor. But in just the same way that Jonathan decides it's not possible for the great Jonathan to have been a murderer and screwed up his whole life, Trump feels it's just not possible that he could have lost an election. And, and so then when he says it was it was um, all a, you know, a fraud, he actually believes it. And those are the most; those are the scariest delusional narcissists. I think the one who really believe their stuff.
4: Yeah, and who'll do anything, I guess, it takes to to not be a loser, to not be. Yes. This. this yeah, we're
1: advocate. about to find out how far that will go. I mean, aren't we? We all, we're all, the whole world is watching nervously as you know, Iran starts to wobble.
4: Well, and also, like, how far we will let it go? Do you know what I mean? How far the rest of us will be like, well, if someone believes that that must be true. And like, that's sort of what we saw in the undoing with his family, with Jonathan's yeah. family,
1: how much want, they were we, willing to believe. Yeah, and They want to believe it's true. I mean, you know, and that's one of the things that Nicole did so brilliantly is, is show that counter to all evidence. There's a part of her that wants him to be innocent and probably, you know, does still love him and, and, Misses their companionship and all that, and I'm, so I. So I imagine it's the same for the Trump supporters. They probably want, you know, desperately want it to be true that this was a faked election.
4: Correct me if I'm wrong, but you knew sort of the whole time that Jonathan was a bad guy, like that he was guilty. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: Okay. Yeah. So were there ways that you would play? A more straightforward scene that if we went back and watched it now, we would say, oh, that's him doing this, you know? Or do you think that that's just the mindfuck of it, I guess you'd say?
1: I had to be yeah. uh, aware of the danger that people might watch this twice. And that if they did watch it twice, I needed them to believe, to, to be able to see the killer in him throughout and never to think, well, uh, that's just impossible. This guy could never have done that deed. But it was a very, very delicate balance, because if I'd lent even a fraction too heavily on playing a killer earlier in the series, I'd have given the whole game away. I mean, there's so many arrows pointing at Jonathan anyway, circumstantially, in terms of his guilt. If I had been in any way fishy or, you know overdone a moment of anger where you thought, oh, oh well, yeah, he's got a vicious temper. And, you know, these were temptations because it's your sort of duty as an actor to be true to your character. Uh, I, I could have given the game away very badly. So I had to be very careful not to do that. But at the same time, as I say, make it believable on a second view that you, you think, yeah, I see now. I see. I see. That's all acting. It's all a front. It's all a charade.
4: Or in the first episode where she's talking about Elena's sort of like aggressive nudity or yeah at the benefit like yeah. letting on that you knew her at all
1: yeah i know and so you know i always have these very scrupulous notes all over my script it's, it's a spider's web of, of notes of thoughts what the character's thinking and of course you know in a moment like that we're sitting in the back of the car and she, she's telling me about my girlfriend who's you know had a kid with me and is now stalking me and stalking my wife and my wife's just telling me a sort of semi-amusing story about this woman appearing naked in a gym of course the truthful emotion for jonathan right then is he's shitting himself it's terrifying news and he's sweating and uh, but i could not let any of that show so the, the only way to, to 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 play that is is to assume i think correctly that jonathan was just a brilliant uh, sociopath. I mean, uh, brilliant at at covering, uh, you know, as they very often are. They're entirely plausible, these people. Um, and occasionally I would say to Susanna Beer, well, oh, okay, we've got three takes like that. Should we do one where there's just a shadow that passes across his face? Maybe for the people watching it the second time. And she always said, no, too dangerous, too dangerous. <laughs>
4: um, I know that, I mean, you mentioned all of the notes in your script. I know that you have done extensive amounts of like granular research for, you know, the roles that you've done throughout your career in order to sort of hide behind that character's mask, I guess. What do you know way more about now than you thought you ever would?
1: What, in, in terms of this film or other films? In
4: terms of more, I mean, or in other things. Like, I know you've mentioned that you know a lot about 70s British politics. Well, right? I <laughs> do,
1: I do. When I played Jeremy Thorpe, I did. <laughs> a, a lot of this is down to nerves. I mean, uh, you know, it, in the... Stanislavski tradition of acting, you you do do gigantic amounts of research and you build up huge backstories for your character and all that. I don't know if it works. Maybe it does. Uh, uh, But a lot of the reason I do it is not for Stanislavskian reasons. It's because I'm so nervous. I think the more prepared I am and the deeper everything is embedded in my cells, the less likely I am to suddenly feel exposed and have a panic attack. That's yeah. why I learned my lines about six years in advance <laughs> because I need them all to be bedded, bedded in. So it's less, you know, like if you're learning a piece on the piano, it's just as a pure function of time. Suddenly you can do it without thinking. And I like to get to that point with the character and especially with lines. So there's no panic on the day. There cannot be anxiety. Anxiety is the enemy.
4: Do you, how fast does it go away? Like, you know, you shoot the scene. No, you shoot the scene. Is the are the is the are the words gone?
1: (laughs) Um no, they they can linger. Depends on the words. I played Hamlet in a very strange production in 1980. We were all dressed in Star Trek costumes. (laughs) It was at the Edinburgh Festival. And I can remember huge chunks of Hamlet now. Isn't that weird? (laughs) It's a mere 40 years ago.
4: It could just be a testament i guess to the to the to the words i guess you yeah. know yeah I mean, how easy they are maybe. like it's like knowing a song do you know like how melodic they are kind of in a way
1: yes there is that and the fact that i have been performing them to myself in the bath for 40 years you know how marvelous <laughs> my voice sounds in this bathroom
4: <laughs> um a lot of people had theories about the ending of the undoing before last night do you mind if i run some of the bio and, oh, and uh, tell me how the why they're wrong I mean, I know why they're wrong now because I've seen the ending of the show, but if they're they're irrational, I guess. Um, A lot of people thought it was Sylvia, the friend. Like you mentioned, you had had an affair in the past. Yes. Um, And people were like, that's who it is. That's his daughter, too.
1: She did it. They're onto something there because there was a draft of the script in which I had made a... When she tells Grace about me having been fired from the hospital and how I came to her to try and represent me against the hospital for whatever it was, in, in, inappropriate touching of patients, parents or something. Uh, she says, and, and let me tell you something else. He, he made a pass at me at that time. So there's the, the, they're onto something. But um, and equally, they're on to something because, of course, it's Sylvia who colludes with the prosecution to give her the information yeah. about me you know, not having had any remorse or regret about my dead sister, etc.
4: Some people thought it was Henry, and even your character seemed to suggest it was Henry at some point, out of this rage, yes. like family yes. annihilator sort of thing.
1: Yeah. What it, that was a brilliant cliffhanger put in by David Kelly at the end of episode five, just brilliant. But as soon as Henry said, well, I found it in the outside fireplace at the beach house, you know, I, I, I always used to ask Nicole, what's the moment where Grace knows it's me? And I think that's where she said it. Although she also said, there's no going back for Jefferson <laughs> once he's even suggested that it's Henry who could be the killer. That's when she knows that he's fucked in the head completely.
4: I thought right before that too, where he suggests it's the, the husband who must have followed them to the beach house and then planted it there. It was like, okay, you're clutching they at Yeah,
1: straw- grasping at straws. Yeah, the, yeah. Nuts, you know, the big scene, you near know, the piano, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Don't um, forget, I haven't seen any of this for months and months and months, so you're much fresher on it than I am.
4: Um, speaking of the piano, some people thought it was it was Donald Sutherland's character, the father, he had somehow manipulated this all.
1: I don't know how much of that was deliberate on the part of David Kelly and how much it was enhanced by Donald himself, who's quite mischievous and I think liked the idea that people might Think he was responsible,
4: and then some people, of course, thought it was somehow Grace's coats because everyone was obsessed with Nicole Kidman's sweeping velvet coats throughout, throughout the series.
1: Yeah, I, I noticed. No <laughs> one wears clothes like Nicole, and, and we did have an absolutely brilliant costume designer.
4: Last question about the show, at least: um, Why does Jonathan know so much about Albany, and he has a seemingly intimate knowledge of a random bridge? I
1: guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. I did have answers for all these things scribbled in the margin. I think, uh, well, it's road trip two, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I'd taken Jonathan, uh, Henry on a road trip before I promised him another one. It was probably years previous and I never got round to it. And I think I wanted to show him a road trip where I had been taken as a boy by an uncle who lived in America. And I think it was up there. And I think we had the fried clams. Um, I think that was my backstory, but, you have to remember that every time there's a fish reference in this film, it's because David Kelly is obsessed with fish. He lives in Northern California and he goes fishing virtually every day and uh, just loves them, catches them, eats them, strokes them, um, watches TV with them. He, he's a he's a fishaholic.
4: Good for him. I mean, that's a very calming pastime. I grew up fishing, so it's great. Is that
1: right? Okay. Mm-hmm.
4: It is. Um, but at some point you're like, this is too much fish. I guess he might just throw it all back.
1: I don't know. You have to ask him.
4: You have awards buzz for this role. Does that acclaim affect you at all? And like, do you strive to be recognized or is applause like, do you like it?
1: (laughs) I think any actor who tells you they don't is lying. Uh, Of course, you love it. It's part part in in your DNA. But I, I remember or doing the theater in the early eighties. And uh, we were doing the curtain call at the end. And one of the old actors said, um, well, darling, the tip I always say for the curtain call is your face should be surprised, but delighted. And uh, so you're supposed to look, oh, I can't believe it! you're clapping, but I thank you so much. And that's that's the pose that we all have to affect at these moments, you know, clapping.
4: <laughs> but I did all this work and thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs>
1: and yeah. I appreciate recognizing it
4: um speaking of and speaking of that sort of that sort of vibe people really love paddington too um, and your your role in that but also earnest adults just want to like want paddington to like live in their house and they want to cuddle paddington and all this craziness um does that sort of affection for that movie surprise you at all and then have you ever felt genuine like affection for such a non-real character
1: well i i yes i mean i have to do a lot of watch a lot of cartoons and read a lot of children's stories now because I'm in the same boat as you, and um, I find them incredibly moving. There's several children's stories I can't read because they make me cry, and equally, you know, I watched Finding Nemo the other day on a on a plane and ended up in floods of tears. Uh, my only comfort was when I looked around the first class cabin on British Airways, all these other bankers were also in floods of tears watching the same film. I mean, it's very sad. And moving and it's wonderful they find nemo so yes I, i'm very susceptible to that and that's for paddington 2 the fact that people are catching on to that film uh, is massively uh boosting because paul king's a great great filmmaker that's a, i think it's a really brilliant film and it's brilliant that people are watching it
4: what books do you love like what books do you love reading with your kids
1: oh well well, I'll tell you the books that make me cry, which they love. <laughs> they love death. So do you read um, Mog? Do you have Mog over there as a, as a cat that uh, gets up to mischief? And then there's, there's one where it's very controversial. Mog finally dies. I think this woman had been writing the Mog stories for years and years. And so I think children need to understand about the death of animals. So there's one where Mog just dies at the beginning, and it's, it's unbearable. But the children love it. And then there's Stickman. Do you know Stickman? Okay. He's just a stick, and he, uh, well, he, he lives with his stick family, his stick wife, and he's got three stick children, and he goes out one day, and he gets in terrible danger because, you know, dogs pick him up thinking he's a stick, and he ends up on a fire, and he's nearly burned. And anyway, in the end, he gets back just in time for Christmas, and they're very pleased to see him. It makes me cry. <laughs> <laughs>
4: the, uh, that reminds me, there's these John Classen books where they're like, I want my hat back, that's not my hat. There, those make me a little, little weepy about okay. friendship and.
1: Sex oh, okay. <laughs> Super dad.
4: <laughs> I have not read that one.
1: I'll have to look. That makes cry. And there's one other uh, absolute killer. Oh yes, Mister Just So. He's a he's a rabbit, and he lives in a burrow which is absolutely perfect. Everything's perfectly in order. He lives by himself. He's sort of bachelor rabbit for certain age, and then one day he goes out and he finds four ducklings who've lost their mummy and so he, he takes them back into his burrow and he, he, he feeds them and and realizes he's stuck with them and he has to you know change their nappies and bath them and all that stuff and then his lovely perfect burrow is turned into chaos and uh and then mummy turns up takes them away and he's very sad he misses them that's, that's awful really, well, i know but i think then they become friends anyway That always makes me cry. It's really the story of my 50s.
4: (laughs) Patrick, there you have it. That's my chat with Hugh Grant. And uh, I really appreciate him giving me things to add to my kids' Christmas list. Like, that's not what I thought would come out of that interview. And it's nice to have.
2: Well, like you said at the top, uh, he was pleasantly charming, but we would have expected nothing less. (laughs) Um, Well, that is going to do it for this week's episode of Push the Envelope. You can check out, if you haven't gotten to see The Undoing, you can check that out on demand through HBO. Mara, where can people check you out?
4: I'm on Twitter at at Mara E, M-A-R-A-H-E
2: perfect and i'm at patrick gomez la as i mentioned that's going to do it for this week's episode of push the envelope but please if you are not already subscribed please make sure to subscribe and rate and comment and like and i don't know send us a carrier pigeon let us know what you think or if there's people you'd love for us to be speaking to and uh speaking of people that we will be speaking to we will have a whole nother interview and staff discussion coming up next week as we drop new episodes of push the envelope every thursday but until then bye bye This episode of the AV Club's Push the Envelope was brought to you by producer Michaela Heck and sound engineer Ryan Allen.